If you turn in your Bibles or you can look on the wall behind me, I'm going to read you uh, what is really kind of a strange passage. And you see a pattern in my life. I, if you're here often, I like these strange passages. This is Joel, one of my favorite books of the Bible. And Joel 2, 28 through 32 is definitely one of the remarkable Old Testament passages I, I, I feel personally attracted to in my time. I, I, I didn't release the kids. And the next 20 minutes of our lives will be much worse if I don't do it. So, kids, you are released. Thank you, Karen. You don't have to whisper. You can just yell it. You know what I'm saying? Because if it doesn't, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Karen, again. I was just moved by that last song. You know what I'm saying? And I just was kind of like, okay, I'm just going to get up and pray and Expect all these kids have attention spans that are equal to ours, right? Not going to happen. All right, again, Joel 2, 28 through 32, it says, And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. When you open the Bible, there's all sorts of stuff. There's there's information that goes any number of different directions. And To me, what is probably the strangest book of the Bible is the book of Ecclesiastes that I'm not going to read from at all this morning. Excuse me. But Ecclesiastes goes on for like 13 chapters, and it's just a roller coaster, okay? Up, down, and all around. You see the the soaring heights of human life where things can really go well. Great joy, great excitement, great enthusiasm, positive things taking place. But then it sinks into absolute despair. And the most often returned to word, the most repeated word in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes is the word uh, absurdity or vanity. Okay, Things just don't work the way they're supposed to. You and I can probably agree about this, right? The world does not work the way we wished it does. You know, I bought the house that we live in two years ago. And uh, Shelby and I bought this house, and, and nothing has gone wrong with it besides plumbing, okay? And we have fixed the same plumbing in the same bathroom, I believe, eight times now, in two years, okay? And if I had all of the time back that I spent on that plumbing, can you imagine? The latest was that we actually tore the ceiling out of our dining room and just stripped the whole thing clean and started over. You know what I'm saying? And, and just... The world does not work the way it should. And frankly, it starts for me with plumbing. I mean, that is the worst thing I can do as far as fixing a house. I hate it. It's just frustrating. When I was in college, um, my last day of school, they had this kind of senior seminar where they got everybody together. And again, I went to school and studied theology, so it was a Christian college. And and we were all there in one room, probably 300 of us, not a real big school. And uh, they got two professors to speak to us. One of them, I can't remember what he said. It just, you know, drifted past me. And uh, the other one, they got me to, they got to speak to us, was the, the historian on campus, okay? 
and especially a church historian. And these 300 people, you could just see them kind of sit back in their seat and get ready when this historian got up. And they asked him to share this, and you're going, what is a historian going to say? And it's just like, oh, no, what, what's going to come out of this guy's mouth? So the historian starts to talk, okay? And he says, listen, I want you to know that there are two doctrines that if you get surprised by them, if you forget them, you will blow it in life. You will blow it with God. And when he said the word doctrine, if historian wasn't enough, you know, everybody just kind of wanted to go, oh, man, we're not going to talk about doctrine on our last day of school. The word doctrine is like, ugh, you know. And uh, he said these lines, though, that have stuck with me after that. He said, listen, there are these two things, and they parallel the book of Ecclesiastes with the sinking lows and the, the just absolutely blessed heights, the, the absurdity and the vanity of our existence, and yet the blessing that comes to us in unexpected moments. And he said, listen, the first thing you need to know is that you can never afford to be surprised by failure or sin. People blow it with God. We blow it over and over and over again. And he said, no matter how deeply you peel the onion of yourself, you'll just take off layer after layer. When you get to the core of your being, if you ever get there, you will find that you are affected and damaged by your rebellion to God. And you know, that's frankly true. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, no matter how many times I've looked at myself, from which angle, from any direction, I find that I am a messed up person. That's just the fact. Now, we were awake at this point in this guy's speech, but we were depressed, and we all needed to see a psychologist at this point. Because if he left us there, there's not a lot of hope. But then he said, listen, there is a better truth, an even deeper truth than what goes on in the life of a human being. There's a deeper truth, and he says that truth is the truth of the doctrine of forgiveness. And he said, no matter how deeply you peel the onion of yourself and find all this failure, you need to know that God's grace will extend that far. It doesn't matter how far you go. God's grace will get all the way there, wherever it may be. And I thought, that is an amazing truth. And he put it so clearly. On one hand, the failure of our lives. On the other hand, the absolute amazing blessing of God's grace in our lives. Okay. So this morning I need to take apart Joel chapter 2, and I'm, of course, going to use this whiteboard. I'm going to wheel it out, and I'm going to put a couple things on the board uh, because we need to know that we can't be surprised. This world is filled with a couple of things, and Joel 2, 28 through 32, really acts as kind of a roadmap, and it shows us where we're at. We can all kind of put ourselves on this roadmap, and you can kind of see yourself. And on one half, one half of the roadmap, you're going to see God's work, okay? God's active blessing, I'll put it. God's active work of blessing people like you and me. But on the other hand, you're going to see this other side, and that's the side of crisis, okay? You see these two things, and they exist in tension as, as absolutely certainly as my professor said, God's forgiveness is great, and the, the failure of mankind is, is, is absolutely constantly around us. You see these truths around us as well. Okay? This one results from the failure, our failure to walk with God. This one results from God's continuing to work and try to bless our lives. And that's it. Okay? When we're talking about Joel 2, what it's going to do is walk us through those two things and it's going to kind of show us what they mean. So let me read for you, and I'm going to start, I'm going to start reading a little bit further down in verse 30. It says, And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. When you read the Bible, you know, sometimes these passages, they're like, they're weird. But what is he describing? 
Okay, somebody said end times, and okay, that could be. What does that sound like? Get literal. An eclipse, a solar, a lunar eclipse. And what happens in our world if there's an eclipse today? You don't hide in the cupboards. You've all been to science class in high school. And you know that an eclipse is no reason to be afraid. In fact, the elementary schools of our land empty, and we all go out and look on the sidewalk, and the teachers explain, well, this is the moon getting in the way of this, or the earth getting in the way of that. And, and you kind of, I remember my teachers as a kid laying it out for us. We didn't hide and get afraid in those moments. We got excited. It was a chance not to sit in science class anymore and listen to the teacher drone on and on. Instead, we got to see actual science taking place, and nobody got afraid. But what would you have thought if you lived 2,600 years ago? No, no science. No Copernicus, no Galileo, no NASA. What would you have thought? Imagine yourself in this guy's picture. <coughs> not everybody at once. You guys are... You're not used to the fact that when I ask a question, I'm expecting an answer, if I can win my battle with my microphone. A warning from God. People took these things as absolute signs that God was displeased with them, right? And of course, that didn't necessarily mean that. But this passage tells us that the way that people look at that, there's fearful things in our, in our future. And frankly, those things are not outside the plan of God. Okay, for us, the things that make us afraid are not lunar eclipses or solar eclipses, the, the, the things that make us afraid are not shooting stars. When you see a shooting star in the night, what do you think? Wow, that's amazing, right? You get, if you're with your uh, spouse or your significant other, it's like, man, huh, it's a good night. You know, we're out on a date and you see a shooting star. And this, But in this time, that sort of thing meant apocalyptic. It was terrifying. Shelby's laughing because she's, that, that doesn't happen very often, that whole romantic thing. It doesn't, doesn't really occur in our lives. But uh, th this crisis, I mean, we have a lot of these. What would a crisis look like in our existence? Disease, okay? I've sat in waiting rooms as families have sat and known that a, an oncologist or a doctor was going to walk in the room and explain to them the results of a certain exam. And I've heard the word positive come out of that surgeon's lips. And all of a sudden, the world just changes. You can feel it. It's like the temperature in the room drops 20 degrees in an instant second, right? We can, we can have a diagnosis, and it changes the trajectory of our lives. It alters us, maybe forever, at least for a time, okay? We're afraid of any number of things, cancer, Lou Gehrig's disease, MS, heart disease, any number of things. Okay, one category. What else? Employment. We have prayed as a church consistently for people who have lost their jobs over the past couple of years. And it seems across our country that employment is a massive issue. Shelby and I are from West Michigan, and at one point the highest unemployment rate in the country was the, was the city five miles from, well, it was the city where we actually lived when we were first married. 22% of the people in the city were unemployed. That was last year. 22%. We're absolutely terrified of losing our jobs. You know, September 25th, I remember, September 25th, 2008, I was driving in to, to, to work here. It was a Monday morning, and I turned on NPR, as I often do, and I listened to NPR, and they announced that morning that across this past weekend, a company named Lehman Brothers that I wasn't altogether very connected to. I, didn't, I wasn't familiar with it, but this massive bank investment firm 
uh, had been trying to sell off pieces of itself. And all weekend they've been trying to sell off these pieces, and as it turns out, nobody was buying. And they had invested heavily in the real estate market, and the real estate market had, of course, tanked, and they couldn't offload enough stuff to get money to pay their debts, and they announced the largest single bankruptcy at that point in our country's history, September 25th, 2008. And it announced, uh, it started to decline in our economy, and it, probably everyone in this room and everyone across the country has in some way been affected by it. We each know people who have been unemployed during this period. We each know people who have faced financial difficulty. Twice in the past week, people have told me that they thought they were going to retire this year and they no longer can afford to. And it's changed their whole plans. Now somebody's working who wasn't expected to work. Some of you have had that experience. Scary, right? Terrifying. What else are you afraid of this morning? Uh Uh-oh. Do I dare ask, Michael? Flood, famine, and fire? Absolutely. Those things are terrifying. Shelby and I were sitting in our living room, and we, were, we smelled smoke last night, and it ran all through the house only to find out it was our neighbors who started an illegal bonfire in the backyard, you know? And, uh, but I thought, man, well, who knows what... My kids are upstairs. It was scary, yeah. A little bit, you know, worrisome. You know, we, we have things in our lives like, we, and we might not want to talk about these, but what if that certain person called you and said, I'm not interested in seeing you anymore? I'm not going to show up at this family gathering this year, and I just would rather not talk with you anymore. I don't know how many times as a pastor I've talked with somebody who walked into a house and half of the belongings and, and, and a significant amount of the income that was in the bank, all those things just went missing as part of the family decided not to come home anymore. There's a lot to be afraid of. And we're not afraid of lunar eclipses. We're not afraid of the stuff described in this passage. But the list for us is real. We have fears, right? And frankly, what this passage tells us is that we're not supposed to be surprised when the finances go wrong. We're not supposed to be surprised when there's, when there's sickness. You know, whether you're a person who goes to church, whether you're a person who walks with Christ, or you're anybody else on this planet, sickness is a normal part of life. I remember when I was a kid, the pastor of my church growing up used to say, the death rate is still one apiece. It is, right? George Burns, and now I think he's passed away. Remember, some of you don't know who George Burns is. But George Burns used to say, he'd get, he'd get up, he'd pull, he'd pull the newspaper over, before he got out of bed, he'd read the obituaries, and if he wasn't in it, he'd get out of bed. That was, that was his answer to life. I mean, we are all going to face this moment called death, Right? And probably it's going to happen with some amount of fear. This crisis in our life, this level, this is normal. It's not allowed to go off the list. And it doesn't change for people who walk with Jesus Christ. It's the same. We face crisis just like everybody else. We face failure. Sin has affected our world as much as it's affected anybody else on the planet, right? But that's not where Joel leaves us. In fact, he started out by saying something that I need to relate to. Let me go back and read verse 28, and you can read with me if you would like. Joel 2.28, Joel 2, and it says, And it will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men, men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in these days. 
In Acts chapter 2, it tells us that the Spirit of God comes on this room full of disciples. Who knows how many of them there were, 100 plus, and we're studying that in the Acts class that I'm teaching right now. And there's this amazing moment where the Spirit of God falls, and there's these tongues of fires, and there's a raging wind that occurs in the room, and there's all of this powerful signs that God is active. But hundreds of years before that, a hundred, hundreds of years before that, not just 100, but hundreds of years before that, the prophet Joel foretells that event. And he says, listen, God is not happy with the level of relationship he has with us today. It's not enough for God. He wanted more out of the human race than he's received, and so he's going to start to pour out his spirit, and he's going to do some amazing things. And while there may be cataclysmic crises in, our, in these people's lives, what Joel is telling them is there's also going to be unbelievably huge blessings. God wants more. You know, the, the story of God and the human race is an interesting story. We failed coming right out of the gate, right? Adam and Eve, they just blow it. There's this whole decline from that moment on. And God talks to a guy named Abraham, starts a race of people called the Jews. And there's this conversation that goes back and forth with failure, all the time failure on the human end, and God trying to reach into our lives and talk with us. Then there's this guy Moses, and God reaches into the people that he's trying to connect with, and he uses this guy Moses. And that's how the people of Joel's day are used to being talked to, through somebody else, through somebody else. You know, one of the core beliefs of our church is that you don't need somebody else to talk to God. You know, we could set up a time when you could talk, talk to the pastors of this church or the elders or the deacons of the church. We do that regularly. But never do we mean to do it because we think you need us to access God. You access God on your own. You have the opportunity to have the Spirit of God in your life. If you walk with Jesus Christ, you already have that Spirit inside your life. And so you don't need me. For that. That's not at all the pastoral role at Parker Ford Church. What this passage tells us, though, is that the people of Joel's day, they expected that they had to do just that. They had to talk to somebody else. They had to talk to Moses or a prophet or this person or that person, but they couldn't go to God directly. And God says, listen, this is not enough for me. I want a more intense walk with you. I want a more intense relationship with you. I'm going to start to pour out my spirit. And what he says about this is completely shocking in Joel's day. It probably doesn't shock you and me. But who got to talk with God in the ancient world? Were women ever allowed to talk to God? No. There's this temple in Jerusalem, and there's actually a women's court, and women were held outside as the guys went into kind of the inner sanctum. Not exactly fair, ladies, right? This passage announces that that day is going to be over, and in fact it is over. God is inviting women, and not only is God inviting women, but it says he's inviting slaves. So there's these class distinctions where the people on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, they're not invited in the ancient world, and yet God is saying, listen, those people matter to me as much as anybody who makes six figures. It doesn't actually matter which level you think you're on or who, where society has placed you, God loves you. In fact, it says the words that every man, every person, God is offering the spiritual connectedness to anybody on this planet. Now for us, we come to this hundreds of years later, and frankly, this isn't surprising. You know, you know this, right? If you've been in church for any length of time, you understand that you have the opportunity to spiritually connect with God. But there's still this truth that God is trying to surprise us with that frankly what you're walking in with God is not enough either. What you have as far as a blessing from God is not all he wants to give. He wants to walk closer and he is actively trying to communicate. The story of the scriptures is the story of a God who's constantly wanted to talk to the human race and the people well, you and me, 
we've turned our heads in opposite directions absolutely consistently. We just kind of go the other way naturally in our lives. Wouldn't you agree? And so this walk that we're talking about, God is saying, listen, I want more. I want people who you wouldn't expect that I'm going to relate to. I'm going to start to reach into people's lives that you wouldn't see coming, and I'm going to move in their lives, and I'm going to change the world through them. You know, in, in the first century, when, when God is building the church, Jesus ascends into heaven, and the Holy Spirit falls like I described earlier, there are these world-changing guys. And we don't know all of their uh, their careers. We don't know what they did vocationally, but you know a few of them, fishermen. Do you think God uses fishermen? I'm from West Michigan where fishermen are kind of normal, and the word fisherman is kind of equated with a salty crowd. Uh, you know, happy hour is a fun hour for the, that group of people, you know? I mean, you, you can go to Chinook Pier in our hometown where Shelby and I are from, and that's where they cut up all the salmon after the day's fishing. And you can see these guys. And the way they talk to each other, it's just kind of, you know, they're tough guys. I mean, they're not necessarily the people that you would think. When, when I think of God changing the world, I'm like, God, why didn't you talk to Bill Gates? Why didn't you talk to Steve Jobs? Why didn't you talk to President Obama? You know, those, those are the sort of people that God doesn't seem to use in the first century. This passage of Scripture says, listen, you can't afford to be surprised by crisis. You never know when the next moment is going to be a dark one, a difficult one. But you can never be a, afford to be surprised by the blessings of God either. In fact, we're supposed to walk in anticipation of the fact that God is constantly, every day, doing a new thing. And he's asking us to respond constantly to him in each moment. He is calling us to himself. He is working and teaching and explaining himself. And he wants more out of his walk with you than you've given him. There's no question about that. And this passage says, listen, God loves you that much. That no matter where you've come from, no matter where you think you're going, no matter what your status in life, God absolutely cares for you and wants a relationship with you. And he announces it through Joel in what is really one of the darkest days. There's an army invading and there's an attacking force outside of the city. And these people are like, maybe the crisis that, that, that's coming is really the last crisis of our lives. And he says, no, listen, there's a bigger plan here. God wants to do greater things. God wants to bless you. He wants to connect with you. He wants a relationship. It's just that you've been walking the other way so long. Some of us have to look at ourselves and go, where are we on the roadmap? Some of us have this past year experienced some crisis. Some of us are looking ahead and we're maybe not even experiencing it, but we can kind of see the possibility of crisis in our lives. Maybe it's our marriage and we're not absolutely certain of where we're at with, the, with our spouse. Maybe it's our finances and we, we have some debt and we have some difficulties and we're going, okay, what's going to happen next? I'm not sure I can keep this up. We're on a treadmill just paying interest and we're never touching the principal. Some of us are just kind of walking through life going, what is going to hit me next? Because it's just been a train wreck for years. I talk to people like this constantly. And so we might be on the right-hand side of this board. We might be on the crisis side. Or maybe we're on the other side where things seem pretty good. But God is calling our name, constantly trying to get more. And we're just kind of walking the other direction, apathetically moving through life thinking, it's not really that important, is it? God fits in this kind of category. He fits on Sunday mornings. He fits in this certain area of my life. He doesn't need more out of me. And God is calling and he's trying to get to the place where he has an intimate walk, a close walk with each one of us. He's trying to have a relationship. 
The passage doesn't end there. It says, regardless of where you come to, from and where your standing is in the world, verse 32, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. It tells us that there is a single response. And no matter where we're at in our walk with God, no matter, no matter where we're at in our relationship, we're called to this moment. And the, this passage is entitled, Sounding the Retreat. You know, we don't sound the tree in our, retreat in our world well. Anybody see that movie, Invincible? Most of you did, did not. I need like heads bobbing and that sort of thing. Invincible is about this guy. He's a Philadelphian, and it's a true story, and he's a pretty good football player, and the, the Eagles actually have this. They're so bad, okay? And, and uh, this is during the Dick Vermeil era. They, 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 the Eagles are so bad that they decide that they're going to have like a free-for-all. Anybody can come in from the city of Philadelphia and try out to play professional football. And of all the people in Philadelphia come out, and they show, you've got to see the movie. There are these guys who come out, and they are, like, hilariously overweight. There's just no way they're making a National Football League team, you know. But they come out, and they're all standing in line, but this one guy actually makes the team. And his name's Vince. That's why the movie's called Invincible. But, but, but it does a great job of characterizing Philadelphia. You know what the people in the Midwest think of, and this is dangerous to talk stereotypically about a city, especially from your, when you're from Grand Rapids, Michigan, like me, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know what people think of when they think of Philadelphia? Tough. Just kind of the gritted teeth, and we're going to make it through life. And that movie, Invincible, did nothing to dispel the, the stereotype. You know, when I saw that years ago in Michigan, I remember thinking, that is truly, I mean, walking down South Street, you see these people. I mean, that's, that is really normal. This is how it is in the East Coast. Well, whether or not you want to believe that's you, we are easily drawn into this perspective what, that whatever we do in our lives, we're supposed to never retreat. We're supposed to be people who live through life just walking through being tough with God, being tough with our, with our family and friends, being tough, just kind of making life work paying the monthly bills, making sure we get to work on time, making sure our retirement fund is in some sort of order, and just walking through life with gritted teeth, never experiencing the absolute joy of what God has for us, never actually relinquishing our hearts and opening them up. And while, frankly, it's a pretty good idea not to retreat in a lot of parts of our lives, frankly, there's a huge amount of battle in our existence where we don't want to retreat. We get in the habit so much of not retreating that when God says, listen, I want to take this baggage from you, we show up and we say, no, God, absolutely no way. I'm used to carrying this load. I don't need your help. This passage says, listen, in the moment of crisis, you either have to run away from God or run towards God. And there are no other options. You either go that way or you come towards Christ. And there are no choices besides these. And so in that moment when we grit our teeth and we say, we're, just, we're not going to pray, we're not going to walk through this, we're not going to be open with brothers and sisters who could help us through this situation, we're going to face this addiction or difficulty alone, whatever it might be, when we make that choice, what we're doing is deciding not to open our hearts to what God has for us. And we're not sounding retreat. What we're doing is tightening our grip on our lives and saying, we control us, we own us, we don't need help. We don't need help, Right? And we do this oh so well. We've gotten good at it as human beings, not just as people in the East Coast. Everybody does this. 
We have enough pride in our life that we think it's our job to take care of us. In James, the New Testament, I want to read just a bit of James chapter 1. You can turn there if you want, but just listen if you don't. It says, Consider it all joy, in chapter 1, verse 2 of James, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. What this says is the crises of our lives, the difficulties, they're normal and they need to be faced with joy. And they need to be faced with something else. It doesn't just leave us with this sense of God's got a plan for us, which it does say that. It goes on and says, And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. I was at the shore this past week, and it reminded me of a few years ago. There was this... There's this moment, um, I'm trying to think how many, this has been about 2,000. Tim and I heard that there was a hurricane on the East Coast. This is our other pastor, for those of you who are new. And Tim and I, uh, he and I went down to the shore because we heard there was a hurricane. And uh, the waves were just monstrous. You know what I'm saying? You couldn't get past the shore break. But we went out into this thing and the waves were towering over my head. And I can still remember like sitting out there and the one wave comes out and it, it leaves just, you know, like the, the, the shells and the sand. It's all rolling as the water is going out to sea and it's sucking it out in preparation for this next big roller that's going to come in. And we would wait for that break and we would jump on it and we would body surf into the shore. Okay, this is what Tim and I were doing. And we were, we were doing this for a while when all of a sudden one particularly big wave grabbed me. Okay, and, and I was riding it, I was riding it, I was riding it, and then I got in front of it. You ever, do you guys body surf? Anybody here? You know what? So when you get in front of a wave, what happens? You fall, right? And all of a sudden, instead of doing this, I was doing this. And I remember looking and seeing the, the seashells kind of rolling around on the ocean floor. I mean, there was no, no water between me and the bottom. And I thought, this is it. I'm in serious trouble. I mean, I was in crisis of an epic nature. And I remember going, I think I'll just roll into a fetal position and see what happens. And I lost half of the skin on my body. I mean, it was just amazing. I was scraped from my ankle to my shoulder. Just, and I got out and I'm bleeding. And the other guys are like, what happened to you? You know, I fell off the wave, you know. And anyway, this passage asks us to consider our lives. We can easily become like a wave. The crisis hits us and we just go with it. We body surf our way through it and we don't actually deal with any problem on the right level. We don't retreat and go to God, listen, I want your help. And we turn into this wave that just kind of goes here and there. They always are coming in. They're constantly coming in. And life becomes just a, a battle. You sit there all day at the ocean and what happens? Waves hit the shore. It never stops. The crises of our lives, the crises, they just, they just keep hitting us, one after the other after the other. And this passage asks us to stop and change and go, listen, God's wisdom is there for us if we just want to put up the white flag for a quick second. If we just want to offer our hearts and say, listen, God, you have a better way. You have an understanding. You have a walk that I have been called to and I haven't, I haven't retreated. I haven't given my life over to you. This passage asks us to ponder the fact that we need to cry out 
We need to open our hearts. We need to listen to what Jesus has called us to for years, which is that we don't own our existence. We actually need somebody else to lead this thing for us. And in order to do that, we have to retreat. We have to retreat. I'm going to close with this quote. In 1941, Winston Churchill was the prime minister of Great Britain, and it was in the midst of World War II. This is just before Pearl Harbor was attacked, and uh, the, the conflict in World War II before the United States entered it was, was deep and dark. It was difficult, and of course, if you know anything about World War II history, the British islands, they were getting bombed consistently by the Germans. And he was asked to give a speech. This prime minister of England was asked to give a speech he was asked to give a speech at his alma mater. It was, he went to a school at a school called the Harrow School, and he gave this very, very famous speech. If you Google this, it'll come up hundreds of times. It says, never give in. Never, 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 never. And nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. And it goes on, and, and, and Churchill talks about what it means to walk in absolute obstinance to what's going on around them. Bombings and conflict and difficulty, the Germans trying to take over Europe. And there is this sense that he's going to grit his teeth and he's going to walk through. Now what I've got to tell you is I know something else about Winston Churchill, and if you've studied history, you might have run across this small snippet. But there was an Oxford professor by the name of C.S. Lewis who unexpectedly became a Christian just years before this. And in the midst of that crisis, Churchill was trying to figure out how to keep the English islands kind of unified and hopeful, even as they were getting bombed, even as their children were being killed. And this guy, Churchill, calls Lewis and says, listen, I want you to start giving talks because our nation needs faith. And, and while he's speaking at the Harrow School on one end, and he's saying, listen, you guys need to never give up. We're never going to face the moment of defeat. We're never going to think that we could possibly lose our way. While he says that, on the other hand, he's actually secretly behind the scenes calling what is a local Christian and asking him to give speeches over the national radio on British public broadcasting. And in fact, Lewis's speeches remain, and he continued, we continue to read them. I read one of them on my vacation. And it's all about the love of God. It's all about what God care, how God cares for these people. And frankly, it's all about exactly the opposite of what Churchill says in this, in this quote that I read for you. It says retreat. It says give in. God is after us. God cares for us. God loves us. And God is looking for us to open up our hearts and let him in. Join me in prayer. God, we come before you and we realize that there is a deep need in our lives. In this passage, it plays on really what are eternal themes. Each one of us faces difficulties. Each one of us faces moments of, of serious conflict. And yet each, moment, each one of us has had huge blessings. And we've seen you work and bless us and care for us. And maybe we've not even admitted it's you. But Lord God, it is. And you are in control. And so this passage asks us to get to a final moment. It asks us to get to a moment where we surrender our lives to you. Where we stop saying we'll never give in to you. And we start opening up our lives Lord, help some of us, each one of us who needs to, in the specific way we need to, to, to open up our lives in, in what really for us amounts to an uncomfortable way. We don't find this sort of thing easy. 
we want to be in control and we don't want other people to know our frailty and our failures. And yet, Lord, you have called us to honesty, transparency, and openness. And so, God, forgive us for the ways that we walk apart from community. Forgive us for the ways we walk apart from you. We give ourselves to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.